Identity Talk. I'm your host, Jana Lopez. Thank you for sharing your time with me. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about uncovering meaning about who we are and how we come to see ourselves. Words and identity are my life. I'm the author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. I teach online writing workshops called Write About Now and offer one-on-one transformative coaching sessions that break you through to deeper clarity and connection with yourself through a guided process I call See-Through Words. When it comes to navigating identity funky junk, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope mixed with humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk. My guest with me today is somebody I consider interesting and funny and introspective and inspiring and has a definitely interesting identity story. Kelly Carlin is a writer, a television writer for many different projects. She's done one woman show that she created, and she's gone on interesting adventures. She wrote a book called A Carlin Home Companion. And so many facets of your life. And oh yeah, she's also George Carlin's daughter, which helps shift and add and create a very interesting identity story, which I'm so excited to have Kelly here to talk about life, love in the universe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love the name of your podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And I have the whole idea of seeing is relieving. Like, once we can see ourselves, and that doesn't always happen. Sometimes we see ourselves, sometimes we don't. Sometimes it comes in glimpses. And as you know, it's a long, interesting, dynamic, messy process that's always changing. Yeah, I think that's, for me, when I'm always looking at like, what's the main uh, narrative that holds my worldview, it and I think that's why I was so attracted to Jungian psychology was that it is about bringing uh, conscious what is unconscious. And so seeing uh, and then naming is two really important steps in that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I should have added you as a student, you got your master's degree. Yeah, I got my master's in uh, counseling psychology with an emphasis in Jungian psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. Uh, and I'm also a a certified life coach and do coaching for a a living also. Yes. Thank you for adding those things. I appreciate it. So what is it that is important? Do you think on the process of discovery of self? We'll just start at like a 30,000 foot view (laughs) before we dive into the nitty gritties. Well, I think, you know, looking at my life and having, written my life story and and done my solo show. My, my book came out five years ago. So I have some distance even from telling that narrative. And that narrative that I told in the memoir was one that I had been discovering and learning about 
and viewing for probably about 15 years before that. So it's, it's been about 20 years. It was like the late 19, 1990s when I really started seeing my own narrative. Um, and I think that is the biggest key, which you said was seeing. So just to even understand that we're shaped by forces through our enculturation, through our families, and through the culture we live in, by what we make important and what we see our role as. And most of the time we don't see our role, we're just unconsciously in it, uh, especially in our families. We don't understand that, oh, I'm the caretaker or I'm the, um, the scapegoat or you know all those kind of things you learn in family dynamic psychology. And, you know, and then even as a woman, even being a feminist, like even learning a little bit about feminism or having a feminist stance like I did and my, you know, and my parents were very progressive and things like that, but really not even seeing until my late thirties or even my early forties that I had been playing the role of the good girl (laughs) forever. (laughs) It's exhausting when you realize it. Yes. It's, and it's like, it's amazing when you realize it because because you're like, well, first of all, you're like, oh, and then you're like, oh, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, oh. how out of this? <laughs> because it's not easy to break that pattern. We're so we're so indoctrinated into it on so many levels, and and you know, and that's fine. I mean, it's it's not like there's a bad guy in this, but um, but yeah. So I I think it's just realizing that that you are living out a personal mythology. And that there are different characters playing in this story with you. And if you can learn to stand back and see it as a story Mm -hmm. and see the roles everyone is playing, it's hard for the ego because it's a bit of an ego death when that happens, but it's also opened up some new gates to a whole different universe that you get to step into, um, which is terrifying and all of that. You know, it's not easy, but... But I think that is the most, like, that's the first initial thing about identity and figuring out who am I and where am I going or where have I been, you know? Um, And for me, I was always interested in my origin story because I think I felt so lost for so many decades in my life. I kept asking myself, how did I get here? (laughs) Right. What happened? I mean, isn't that a talking head song? (laughs) Totally. And that's the life crisis moment. You know, is this my beautiful wife? Is this my beautiful house? Right. Right. How did I get here? How did I get here? And how did I, why am I so lost? Or why am I so dot, 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 fill in the blank for your own life? And that's super painful. I think it's, I, I can only speak to me, maybe not for everybody, but for me, there's some disillusionment that came along with the realization. And even as you say, you know, we're playing out this mythology, it's still trying to find who we are, which character in that mythology. And then when you were saying that we're, we're all part of it and everybody around us is part of it, I wonder if you believe that even though we have a story that's from parental stuff or cultural stuff or social stuff, do you feel like there's parts of ourselves that we are born with that are who we are, like the basis of the story is solid in, in our psyche or is yeah. it? I mean, it certainly feels that way, right? Yeah. I mean, is there any way to prove that? No. Uh, but certainly, you know, having myself studied imaginal and archetypal psychology, uh, you know, and, and, 
and talk about things like the soul and psyche where That's I no come wonder. from at Pacifica. Yeah. Uh, yes, there is a sense of what Teilhard Chardin talked about was telos, T-E-L-O-S, which is this force within us or the life force within us that is heading towards something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the alpha, which is the beginning. And then there's the omega, which is the wholeness or the completion. And it does feel like there is some sort of software inside of us, which I think is a beautiful combination of nurture, of nature, and then this other mysterious element, which is soul, psyche, whatever it is. James Hillman talks about it in The Soul's Code, which mm-hmm. is a great book. And James Hillman was the what they call the father of archetypal psychology, although he hated that term. Yeah, and I grew up, too, with a parent, my father, who felt destined in his own life. When he was young, he had this vision of watching, you know, he was watching Danny Kay on the big screen. My dad was born in the late 30s. And he like had this vision for himself. My dad was a natural gift of the gab, talented, funny kid, definite class clown. And uh, he saw he saw that on the screen, and he's like, "That's what I want to be." And I and I like and like nine years old, he was like, "I'm gonna." I'm going to become a radio DJ and then I'm going to become a a stand-up comedian. And then I'm going to become like Danny Kay on the big screen. You know, this nine-year-old kid had this sense of destiny. And so there was always in my kind of in the air that I breathed, this sense of like, we are all on some sort of destined path. And I think part of my narrative that I still grapple with is what is my destiny? What am I here to do? And if my dad had this big destiny, which, he pretty much fulfilled, you know, he didn't turn into Danny Kay, but he turned into to George Carlin. You know, when you, when you see someone kind of live this mythological life before your eyes, being a daughter, that's how I kind of saw it. Um, it kind of screws with your own mythology a little bit. Like, where do I fit in to this? And what's my mythology? And, and um, so, yeah, that kind of sense of we're here for a reason or a purpose is always on my shoulder. I think what you're describing is something that only you or somebody who grows beneath or is raised with somebody who has a larger than life illumination. Uh, One of the scenes that you describe, well, there was two in your book that stuck out with me based on what you're describing. One was when you were at backstage somewhere at uh, one of his shows and you had realized they were all gloating on him and fawning on him. Carnegie Hall story, yeah. Yes, and you were standing there, and you realized if you sort of played that, that people would recognize you, and that is where you got this idea of how to see yourself through him. Do you want to chat about that one? Because that was interesting. Yeah, that was kind of a hard thing to to tell and to talk about because it's a a moment where I recognized, you know, those kind of coping strategies we all learn as kids. And so mine was because we would walk into a room and my dad would walk in with my mom and I, I was an only child and be strangers in there. And of course they would all immediately, all heads turn towards my father. It's like a mat. It's like an amazing thing when you watch a celebrity walk into a room and it even happens inside my own body. It's like, Oh, what's this? Oh, shiny object. And we all go to the shiny object. 
Right. And, um, and then people would just like, my dad would introduce me and my mom or whatever. And it would be a, like I say in the story, like a nanosecond of, of, of attention on us and back to him. And it's very horrible. It's a horrible experience as a human to be completely dismissed in that moment. And yet you're also get it like, oh yes, he is the shiny object. He was my shiny object for sure. And so I did figure out pretty young that that was the game on some level. It was unconscious at the time, but I, 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 know, I can feel it in my bones. I know <laughs> there was some part of me that was like, oh, if I stand next to him, Right. Or let people know I'm with the shiny object. <laughs> right. Therefore, I'm slightly shiny too. And you need to like pay attention to me or you need to see me and see my unique light also. Right. Even though I didn't understand that I was just saying, oh, I'm borrowing or I'm with the this big shiny unique light, you know? But so, and that's where it gets so confusing growing up in that kind of a family and then you know cut to be growing up in LA and growing up around Hollywood kids right and growing up with all of that and you it's like part of you feels like you're in a very special magical world yeah where you can't be touched and that you I mean it's privilege it let's name it for what it is now I see it it's like completely in total privilege on some levels but there is this magic shininess around celebrity and then at the same time you feel completely inadequate because you're not there for any reason that you brought to the table except for the fact that you were just born into it and so there's yeah. a ton of shame yeah. and confusion and um and a lot of self-hatred around it too and I would imagine loneliness. Except for that you do have these kids with you who are also going through it. And when I look back on it now, I mean, it is an extremely lonely thing because no one really, no one talked about it, first of all. But we all dealt with it by, I mean, it was the late 70s when I was in high school. So it was a lot of drugs right. and a lot of fucking around, a lot of spending money and a lot of going to parties and going to Hollywood clubs, really distracting ourselves with everything and anything we could. Uh, so that we probably didn't have to feel the loneliness and the confusion of all of that. There was a contrasting moment where you said it was the first time you felt like you belonged, where you were having dinner with Sammy Davis Jr. and Edie Gourmet and your dad. Oh, oh and yeah. I, <laughs> and that was such a contrasting moment, you said, because they paid attention to you and included you and they were so kind to you. And you said that was the first moment I felt like I belonged. Yeah. And that is so powerful because however that shows up for us in our lives, we probably can remember desperately wanting to belong. And then when something does feel in our, in like you describe in your bones of a, you know, like a belonging where you, yeah. so tell me a little bit about that because that is in contrast, the same circumstances of helping you feel invisible also afforded you a moment to feel like you belonged. I think in that moment, uh, looking back on it, and I think it's probably true for all of us that when adults kind of see you as an individual, yeah, that's what it is. It's like, they see you as an individual, you know, when, when adults talk to kids, like they're just talking to them and they're not talking down at them or around them or through them. Yeah, that's a really important moment for a child to feel like that. You know, I, I think the moment you're talking about was uh, so, so it was just this weird <laughs> happenstance thing for Christmas, and my mom had just gotten sober, so it was a it was a 
it was a relief time for our family after being through five or six years of very difficult time, very a lot of darkness. We we stay at this very fancy hotel in Hawaii called the Kahala Hilton, where they have like dolphins in the pool, you know, and all of that. And it was it was Christmas, so it was New Year. They had a big New Year's Eve show with Steve with Steve and Edie and um, Sammy Davis Jr. and as I say, because we're the Carlins, <laughs> we get to sit with them at dinner, you know, and, um, and then after dinner, we're like, after the show or whatever, we're like standing around and my dad and Sammy Davis Jr. are talking about life and world. And I'm, I'm 11, I think, <laughs> 10 or 11, 75, I'm 11. And um, my dad and Sammy start talking about cocaine because mm-hmm. that's what you do in the seventies. And they're like, they struggle with it and how they're kind of over it. And my dad <laughs> about my mother's sobriety right and I'm standing there a kid but I so get it like I'm like oh yeah I know I understand this insanity I mean it's a different version for me I hadn't been doing the cocaine yet but it's like yeah I know that I know this insanity I know this world yeah it's just one of those <laughs> moments in my life where I'm like you know and it, I talk I talk it's like surreal moment number 826 in Kelly Carlin's life like you know oh I'm having a conversation with my dad and Sammy Davis Jr about cocaine right sure why not right <laughs> felt like to me that from just what I was able to read through that there were these glimmers of moments and I think it's true with any identity search I call them whispers and crumbs where there's the things that we can trust because we can see them and know them as guideposts to keep us moving forward. And then there's those things that we can't really see and have a difficult time trusting, but are also part of the stories that keep us threaded towards ourselves. what you described earlier, the purpose that keeps us moving forward. And to me, it feels like the identity story is part of recognizing those whispers and crumbs in ways that we start to notice or take heed because plenty of times we do not. And you describe that when you talk about your first marriage, trying to fumble your way through the difficulties of trying to find yourself in these really, and you had come from so much already with your parents and alcoholism and drug use and your dad being gone all the time and trying to care for your mom and protect her feelings. And, you know, there's so much constantly going on. It's harder to hear those whispers and crumbs, but soon they start to come and you're like, huh, well, that's something about that wasn't right. And the circumstances start to talk to you or speak to you a little bit louder. At least it did for me. And that's sort of what I read in your own story of trying to piece together these moments and these glimmers. Yeah, I think, you know, in our 20s, and you know, in every decade, but I, I think it is an, an increasing ability to trust ourselves, to trust that small voice inside that has has our back that knows what we really want has a vision has the vision and the purpose for our life holds the dream for us uh and you know we have there's that ability to trust yourself and then also to feel capable out into the world. So you, you need both of the, you need, you, you need the vision and the dream. You need to be able to trust the dream or believe in it, believe in yourself. And then you need to be able to like, feel like you can actually do something about it into the world. And that's what being an adult, becoming an adult is really all about. 
Aside from I, paying bills, there's another, there's another right, purpose. And, and part of that is is part of that too, right? Is right. you know, can I can I take care of myself? Can I um, keep my life secure and safe? That bottom uh, Maslow part of the pyramid. And so when you're kind of have some of those missing pieces or don't, you know, haven't been able to really listen to your own intuition um, because of circumstances, because you had to kind of shove it down to take care of family or be in your role in your family or whatever it was, or then try to, you know, numb everything with drugs and alcohol and sex, then you also cut yourself off from that voice, even though it shows up at 3 a.m. going, what the hell are you doing? The walk of shame. Out yeah. Of and so my twenties were like a dance with that. You know, I married, I got together with someone. I was too young. I was 18. He was 11 years older than me. He had a kid. He was married. He was a total train wreck of a chaos of a person, ADHD and everything, but charming and charismatic and had lots of cocaine and, and smart and all of that. And, uh, you know, clearly had some qualities that I was attracted to and and needed in my life at the time. And he, and he loved me and he saw me. And that was the biggest thing that attracted me to him was that he saw me and he wanted me. And I, I needed that, that part of me needed that. And, um, but it, it really kept me from hearing what do I want? <laughs> How do I want to be, you know? And, um, and so my twenties were these, it was this increasing struggle with figuring out what I want and feeling what I wanted and yeah. seeing it and knowing that I had made a choice. I'd married this guy and we bought a house and we had a life and he was very possessive and very controlling. And even though I, four years before I walked away from him, I knew I needed to get out and did it the best way I could at the time, you know, and also being a codependent and a caretaker and all of that, it was, it was long and painful (laughs) separation. Finally, when I left that marriage at 29, the gift it gave me, which was for the first time in my life was that I really, really knew what I didn't want, which is a huge part of learning what you want. So yeah. sometimes when we can't figure out what we want, you know, when I work with, I work with women mostly all, exclusively right now. And a lot of the time I ask them, you know, what's your dream? What's your 10 year dream? What's your life dream? What's your legacy? What do you want to, what's the thing you have to do? What's the, what's the purpose, right? What's the soul's code? And most of them aren't part of the reason they come to me is they're like, I, I don't know. I don't even know how to do that anymore. And so one of the first steps is, well, what do you know you don't want? Check off that list uh, because that will help you determine who you are today and and where you're going. The way you describe the growing up component of being surrounded by just so much uncertainty and drugs in your family and alcoholism and darkness, I, I will say throughout the whole thing, I still felt love. I felt, I did feel so much love between you and your father and you and your mother and your mother and your father, even though it was charged and chaotic. (laughs) I did feel how fortunate to have parents as fucked up or whatever it was that they were going through, just the chaos of the circumstances and the situation. And your dad, of course, had such interesting views. He was a deep, wise, you know, he had so many thoughts about so many things, politically, culturally, socially. So big conversations were going on. And I feel like 
just with all of that, so much of that needing to be a caretaker or fending for yourself or having to adjust at any moment and having him not be around, having to take care of your mother, I just thought at least in some ways that did give you a basis of understanding, connection, and love because there was that there. The main purpose of me telling my story was for people to understand that um, there was a lot of chaos, but that there was an enormous foundation of love. And that when my parents weren't doing drugs and alcohol, they were both incredible people. And, um, and when they met, my mom was barely 21. My mom was 20 and my dad was 23. And when they had me, my mom was 24. My dad was 26, 27. I mean, uh, they were such young as they were in the 60s. They got together so young and they were children. Right. Um, and they had a lot of baggage. My, you know, my mom was an alcoholic from day one, you know, and my dad had lost his father early and he had a big wound with that. And his mother was a narcissistic, crazy woman who was, you know, also gift of the gab. But yeah, there, I always knew I was loved, you know, and that we had this incredible tight bond because of the hardship we went through, you know, right. because of all of the changes my dad's life went through in career, my mother's life went through and her health issues and all of that. An incredibly deep bond. I mean, you know, talk about soul's code. I mean, I feel like the, you know, my mother and father and I, to this day, we're still the three musketeers. It's something my dad called us, you know, it's still, that's st still with me. And I, and I think some part of me would pathologize it. And it's like, yeah, but you know, it's your family of origin, move on, you're an adult and all that. But there's something about the three of us and the dance we did and the dance we continue to do. You know, my mom's gone and my dad's gone. And I mean, and it's less and less every day or every year in my life, but, but there is this deep, deep connection we had. And that I so wanted to get that across in my book. It's totally clear. Yeah. And that it's not, there's no bad guys here and there's no, no. there's just a bunch of lost people trying to find their way and thankfully these three lost people trying to find their way are all decent human beings to begin with you know we're just all you know kind of missing the mark over and over again in some ways and we're just human there were some beautiful moments I love the part when you were at Will Will Rogers Park and, you know, he take with the horse barns and everything, like he had that insight, hey, do you want to take lessons? Yeah. Instead of throwing the ball and being the dad in the air quotes, <laughs> like the moment of you two unfolding as father and daughter became something different. And I thought that was really beautiful. And to me said a lot about how we show up for each other in the ways that we can with who we are. That was really clear to me in that when I read that. Yeah. And, and I think that really does speak for all of us and, and such, you know, and, and that is so much of what I wanted to communicate was that really in every moment, we're all doing the best we can. Right. It, it might not look like it on paper, but it's really what we're capable of in the moment. And sometimes those, you know, we really do rise to a new level and to, to the occasion and um, come, come through on, on, a, on a higher level that moves things forward. And sometimes we can barely show up for the oh, yeah. life. And yet every day as humans, we're, all we can do is manage and do the best we can. 
you know, and, and I think that, you know, we're talking about identity and we were talking, you know, how we started this conversation about seeing our narrative and seeing our roles and, you know, especially the family of origin stuff. I think there, there's a necessary part of people who go into therapy and, you know, trust me, I've done decades of therapy. Um, uh, where you, where you kind of have to, to have to feel the pain and feel the anger and, and hold your parents' feet to the fire. There is a place where, as a therapist, even when I was, and you get to say, you know, that wasn't okay. Right. That really wasn't okay that you were six years old and you were having to solve your parents' marriage problems. Right. <laughs> not that you had to, but like, that's not okay. That's not okay that, you know, that these kind of things went down. It's okay to see that it wasn't okay because that's then a point of where your own self-care comes in and where you say, oh, I don't have to maintain that level of quality of self-care anymore. I, I deserve more than that. I deserve better. And I need to demand that for myself in my own life right. as an adult. Um, you know, because we learn kind of the standard levels as kids. And if we're always sacrificing ourselves, especially as women, then that becomes our thing. Well, I'll survive. I'll be okay. Yeah, you will survive. Yeah, you will be okay. But are you live? If you really, are you really living your life then? Are you really, you know, here on full purpose? Are you really caring for yourself? Is this really an act of self-love? And so there is a moment where you kind of have to make your parents the bad guy on some level. And you have to feel that rage and you have to feel that pain. And then you have to forgive them. Then you have to just, you do have to go to forgiveness, which is then, they were doing the best they could. Was it hard for you to share him with the world in that way? Like, you know, on one hand, I would think, I don't know. I'm trying to imagine myself as a child. I would, even teenager, whatever, like just having to share my father with the world, I'd, I would be somewhat resentful. But at the same time, I look at all the material that's out there and all the things that he's written and talked about. And you're going to always be learning from him too, because of what he shared with the world. You know, when you live a life like that, you're just living your life. You don't know that there's other right. way to live the life. It really wasn't until my father died and I was um, 45 years old and someone on Facebook said to me, thank you for sharing your father with us. And I just collapsed in tears. And it still brings tears to my eyes because I was 45 years old. I had never known that that's right. what happened. I had no idea that I was sharing my father with the world. I had no idea that I was always making room for the world and everyone else's relationship with him. And of course his work was the big, you know, was like the force of nature in our lives. You know, it's like, I talk to people about it. I say, you know, it's like having your father be Picasso not that my father's equivalent to Picasso. Maybe he is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. Some people may feel that. I do. But, um, but it's like, you're, you're kind of part of the conversation and the unfolding of humanity at a place in time in our culture and in our life. And my father was part of that force. And there was something bigger than him, it felt like, in our family that was a part of our family was this evolution of consciousness that was going on. And so evolution doesn't give a shit. No. <laughs> it just moves forward, right? You know, survival. The big electron, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like life 
Life force is life force, you know? And so this is part of what I ended up unpacking after my dad was dead. And I was, this is why I was able to write this book was to start to see that incredible obsessive work. I mean, he was a workaholic. He was obsessed with his work. He was always doing, always writing, always working. And so that whole sharing of the world thing, I had to, I had to grieve that. I had to go through my own fuck. Yeah. Damn it. I had to fucking share him and I want my dad and I didn't get my dad. And, you know, and I absolutely feel all of those feelings, the rage of it, the, (sighs) all of it, the pain of it, the loss, the emptiness to just feel it all because I had, I had, yeah, I had just been walking around going because I had also benefited so much from that work in the world and his work obsession was because, you know, I did get to borrow some of the light and some of the shine and even getting to do my solo show and getting to have a book published. I know why I got my book published. I know why I had a solo show. I mean, A, I'm a great storyteller and I'd been working on my craft for 15 years before that. So I knew that I deserved a place on the stage and doing my solo show taught me so much about my capability and my talent and my gift and what I bring to the stage that my father doesn't bring to the stage. So that was a huge amount of healing for me and a huge amount of ability to see myself finally talk about identity. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, and I, I can't ignore, you know, my friend Paul Provenza who ended up directing my solo show and he's a comedian and actor. He had a show called the green room with Paul Provenza. You can see it on YouTube. It's, amazing conversations with comedians. I worked on the show as a producer. When I decided to do my solo show, he said to me, or even before that, he said to me, look, you could, you could just be invisible, Kelly. You could just disappear. You never have to talk about your dad again. You do not have to deal with his legacy. All of that kind of stuff. You could just move into the background. And I, and I knew though, that if I did that, I would be avoiding the hard work. Right which is if I don't walk through the fire of what it's like to say, hi, I'm George Carlin's daughter. Yes, I'll talk about my dad. Yes, I'll talk about my own life. Yes, I'm here in public. Yes, I'm here to have the messy, strange conversation about all of this. Yes, I'm putting my name in the title of my solo show in my book. Yes, I get it. Yes, we're going to talk about all of this. If I didn't walk through all of that, when it was all done in 2016, when I was done with the solo show and this paperback of the book, it came out and it was done. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that I could then go explore other things, that there was an integration that would naturally organically happen for me. And that I, I would know how much of that I would want to talk about in the future and how much of it was important. And I knew also that I was using my life story, as you've picked up on so beautifully during our conversation here, uh, not to talk about my dad, but to talk about how to learn how to be a human being. Right. And everything that happened in the Carlin family is a universal story. Right. We are, we are actually a very ordinary American family. <laughs> it's just some things are more highlighted than others, but everything that we dealt with, most families deal with. And that's the joy of having told my story is that I still get emails from people who are like, I just read your book. 
I lost my mother with this. I dealt with this. I dealt with that. My mom, this, my dad was a famous judge and it took me till my forties to figure out how to be whatever it is. Um, resonance, 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 right. resonance. And that's all I've ever wanted is to get on a stage and do what artists do, which is tell the universal story of humanity. It's fantastic, uh, really. And I think brave and it's something that not everybody shows up for. That's for sure. And it's good that you did. And I mean, I will say one benefit is not everybody's as funny, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and certainly not everybody is as funny as he was. I mean, to have some of that shit going on is comical, but God, he's funny. You know, you're funny and your mom yeah. too. She had her own yeah. twist on oh, things. Yeah. So to have, Absolutely. to be material in your own house always amongst the political and cultural and social and craziness and nuttiness of being human to have some of those stories and just have that funniness. And, you know, I knew I had great stories to tell. That's why originally in 99, when I wanted to do a solo show that didn't work out for me. And I, that's a big piece of my relationship with my dad and big part of my identity stuff that is in the book, but I knew I had great stories to tell. And it's so important. You know, my mom used to say to me when I was a kid and a teenager, you know, lighten up. You're so serious about everything, you know, because I was the one who held kind of the the pain for the family. I was the Persephone of the family, definitely. <laughs> I'm a four on the <laughs> Holding the gap, feeling everything. And I had no idea how to laugh at myself. The idea of laughing at myself was just like, no, I must take everything so seriously. Um, and I was, I mean, I was light and funny in other ways, but it's about laughing at yourself, being able to laugh at your circumstance. And it did take me a long time to learn how to do that. And I knew that in telling my solo show and really in writing the book, especially because the book is such a, you have to go so deep and really create moments and all of that and circumstances and create scenes for people to be in with your words. And just from my practice of learning to be a storyteller, if you, if you want to talk about mm -hmm. big, dark, deep, big shit, you got to learn to make yourself the butt, of the, the butt of the joke, or at least the fool in the story. Right. There's always got to be a place where you're slightly unconscious and not getting it, and yet plowing forward. Because if you watch, you know, because that's the way we all are. Right now, <laughs> even though we're feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be 57 on Monday. Look at how conscious I am. I've done so much work. I know in 10 years, looking back, I'll be like, oh my God, I was a fool in that moment. So, you know, there's always some level of foolishness we're in, but that's the glory of, of the drama of life. You know, that's why we watch movies. We watch movies to watch the foolishness of the character at the beginning, you know, them to slowly something dawn on them so that they can change course a little bit. Right? Aren't we all Hello Kitty diaries that are cringeworthy yes, anyway? Totally. I mean, I love him and I have mono. <laughs> <laughs> Twirling your hair. Totally. You know. Yes. And and so the fun part for me in this part of the journey is to let myself be in my story, be my human drama, and also to be able to stand outside of it. And you know, that's why I practice Zen Buddhism. Get on the cushion, move ego over here, drop name, drop body, drop mind, drop self, and disappear you know, not in a negative way, but 
to see that it's all this manufactured drama on some level. And um, makes it interesting. Well, it makes it interesting. And it also makes it in its, you know, and it's funny because I used to get really mad at my dad because, you know, people will say, well, you know, those last 15 years, he was just too dark for me. He's just too angry and too dark. And his position, what what had really cemented for him was he was able to take this perspective where he was kind of floating off the planet somewhere and looking at the planet as a whole and kind of just being a mirror to us. Like, this is what I'm seeing, people. <laughs> just letting you know what I see here. Right. And there was such a detachment on in his material on some level that it used to like hurt my heart a little bit. Like, oh, there's not a lot of empathy or compassion here in the moment. And he kind of was reveling in the, the drama of it all, like a god would, who would you know sit outside and go, oh, look at look at those crazy humans, what they're doing right. now. And and you know, and I used to say, you know, Dad, I'm going to be here a couple of decades after you. I need to still be alive. Like I need some of this stuff to work out. You know, right. this big thing about you know we're circling the drain, and we may be. This may be a cul-de-sac of genetic experiments. Who knows? But I also see the beautiful, magnificent perspective that is. Because when you take that perspective and you detach from the kind of the, the white noise level of the drama mm-hmm. and you see it for the bigger dance it is, then you can see the love and the joy. And my father did see the love and the joy. And he would say, I saw it in an individual's eyes when I met them. I could see the whole universe in their eyes and see all the potential of this incredible species in every single person's eyes. Now, are we gonna, are we gonna walk that walk? Are we gonna manifest it? Are we gonna walk in love and compassion and connection and believe that we really are interbeings with every live living thing and everything on this earth? I mean, that was interesting because you put that in your book about the planet is fine that whole piece that came out of the uh, Jammin' in New York show on HBO. Yep. And I think that's what you're describing. Yep. uh, Yep. The planet is fine. The people are fucked. Right. Pack your bags, folks. We're going away because the planet's going to be okay. It'll, 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 it'll figure out what to do with all these things and it'll integrate plastic and all that. And of course people saw that as my dad saying, you know, people put all, project all sorts of shit onto him about that. All the climate deniers, climate change deniers are like, see, he didn't care about the planet. <laughs> like, no, guess what? Oh. The man recycled every day. Like, trust me, he was a fanatic about recycling. You know, he just saw greed. He saw human greed as the problem. And, and, the, and that really his thing was about that humans really aren't going to step up because it's going to be inconvenient. If you really want to say what you're doing, which is you really want to save the planet, we're going to have to get rid of probably half of the bullshit that we fucking consume yeah did you ever get any like visitations from either of your parents and any messages or anything that came through like any revelations have you gone to any mediums had anything channeled like after they passed away you said was when you were able to start unpacking some of these things like you didn't have the realization that you were sharing him with the world until he was gone so were the pieces of those lessons of what they instilled with you through the love, through the vantage point of 
human nature and the goodness and the greed and all of this, does any of that come back to you in, in any form of communication with them? Like as you've moved through your um, life? I tell the story, I tell the story in the book about my mom coming to me the day after she died in a shower and putting her arms around me and telling me that I'm going to be okay. And I didn't really have any experiences like that with my dad too much, but I'm a person who talks to the ancestors pretty often. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm an imaginal psychologist. It's what I do. I open the portal and sit with uh, imaginal figures, dream figures, daydream figures, uh, ancestors, all that kind of stuff, kind of that shamanistic portal place mm -hmm. and, and have you know, conversations more or less all the time with both personal parents, but also kind of what they call the mother imago mm -hmm. or the father, imago, the archetypal mother, the archetypal father. You know, there's different versions of our parents, I think, that live inside of us. There are the personal wounded humans that we all dealt with that had their pain and their wounds and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then there is some, I think, really whole version of them that if we can learn to be in relationship with that and We'll, we will get a lot of the nurturing and a lot of the guidance that we don't get through the wounded version of them because they weren't capable. Uh, you know, so, you know, imagining that our mothers are fully healed from their wounds, from their wounds, from the mother line wounds, right? Or from whatever they lived through in their life or the, the fathers, you know, are, are healed through, through that. Um, it can be a very, very powerful therapeutic tool to use active imagination. I'm a huge person who uses active imagination all day, every day for my own personal practices and with clients. I mean, that's super important to you to help them heal those spaces and places to help them find purpose. And I teach them about archetype uh, archetypes in general and mythology and, and, and archetypal energy and, and psyche, we hold all in the middle of a dream at night. You see it all as real. It's not like, you know, unless you're lucid dreaming and watching the dream. 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, it, we're dreaming. We're, the dream is dreaming us and we are dreaming the dream. So yes, have conversations with them. Um, I, you know, I've had a couple of encounters with some people who do that kind of medium work. You know, there's a part of me that rolls my eyes and thinks, oh, please, it's all bullshit. <laughs> And then there's another part that's like, and there's information to get. So I take it all in the moment and let it inform me where I'm at right now. Um, I do know that after my mother died and after my father died, there was this enormous opening of what we call liminal space. Mm -hmm. Like I really felt that I was between two worlds, that I was really connected to the beyond and to the human life. And for my mom, it lasted quite a long time. For my dad, too. Um, I mean, months and months and months where I really felt the veil was very thin. Um, I do not know what that is. I don't know energetically what it is, physics-wise what it is, but I know what I experienced, and it was profound. And after my mother died, which was my first real profound experience of something like that, it really did give me that glimpse, that glimpse we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. of like, what am I here to do? And what's the truth of my life? And I really understood for me that, oh, my path is to be able to sit in that liminal space mm -hmm. and to access truth from it and to use my gifts, whatever they may be, whether they're communication gifts and I'm on a stage or writing or holding the space for someone's healing and wholeness to just take all that information 
and to organize it in such a way that it makes people feel connected and feel safe and feel seen and feel heard and to feel like there is some meaning here on some level. You know, we each have to find what that is for each of us, but the experience I had after my mom died and after my dad died, it's like entering a different quantum level of seeing and feeling and hearing. It's, it's pretty profound. Um, and I, I don't understand it and I can't explain it. I just know what I lived through. What do you think for the things that we can't see, but that we so desperately need right now, what would you offer or suggest for people that are wandering? You know, one of the things that's helped me the most to understand that we have aspects of ourself that are bigger than our ego. Some people call it God. Uh, some people call it a higher power. Some people call it the big electron, like my dad. <laughs> I love that, you know, by the way. I know, I love it too. Because it's, it it's says such everything a, it needs it to all, say. It's got the science yeah. and it's the spirituality. It's fucking it. got everything. It's perfect. Wow. It's just, it's energy, right? But it's bigger than ego. Our ego is the experience we have of, of our conscious mind. And our unconscious is so tapped into so many bigger things. And it's so resourceful. And so what I start to do and think is important is to, you know, and how I started figuring out who I was when I was really, really lost was I started looking towards people that I admired. What is it about them? What traits do they have? What path have they taken that just attracts me? Why am I so interested in Georgia O'Keeffe? Why am I obsessed with this woman? Because she followed her desire to express images and was willing to leave <laughs> and go to the middle of nowhere of the desert and almost had to because she was a woman in order to cut her ties with all the roles that her society wanted her to be fit into and that Alfred Stieglitz needed her to be for him too. In order for her to find herself, she needed to go to the desert. I've and been there. Yes, me too. I mean, it's profound. Oh, gorgeous. And the, and the land there is, is she, I mean, all the artists that went there felt the land, knew the power of it. So, what, you know, what is it about her? What are her traits, her courage, her vision, you know, and, and I'd start to, to accumulate and and start to have conversations with these figures. Who else was on that list? I mean, she was just, is there a description for badassness? I mean, I yeah, don't know what totally. else. Uh, you know, um, Frida Kahlo is another one, which, you know, those two women are usually big uh, up on the pantheon, right? Mm -hmm. um, Joseph Campbell was another one for me. You know, here's a man who saw all of these kind of philosophies and this mythologies through religion and like then saw the bigger picture. I mean, he's the one who really started talking about comparative religion earlier than anyone else. He mm. saw underneath it all. Carl Jung too, you know, his whole phase with the red book and working with his inner figures. If people are interested, it's, he's the one who kind of went on this pioneering mission by himself to have encounters and conversations with all of these inner figures, thinking he was going insane, thinking he had lost his mind and was schizophrenic. 
And then during the day, he'd go off and work with his clients and everything, but spent years unpacking this stuff and kind of figured out a way to do it, how to access these parts, see in their path that this is your path too, most likely. It's not going to look exactly like it, but there's something about all of this. Courage, pioneer, uh, creative expression for me. These are all things that are important. So whenever I get lost, I tap into these core values of myself as, you know, what does my pioneering spirit need to express in the world right now? What do I need to push up against? I mean, it's no, you know, no wonder my father was this pioneering spirit also who pushed up against the status quo, but mine is more in the spiritual realm and in a different way with more EQ in it, you know, and his was more with humor and all of that other stuff. So, but that is how I began to really start to put the pieces together for myself. And, and to this day, when I get lost, I do have to remind myself, what's my fire? What is my fire in my belly want? You know, and sometimes we don't even, can't even connect to our fire. So where the hell is my fire? It might be the first question. Come on, baby, light it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and you know, so, and, and who are those people that have fire? You know, and seeing right now what's going on in our culture, that rage on the streets, mm-hmm. um, those, those the, the looting and the rioting is a collective psyche expression of fire. Fire energy, fire energy is really important for transformation. Now, fire energy will burn the whole place down too if you don't regulate it, but it's important because it does burn off the things that are no longer necessary inside of our own personal personality and inside of the collective. What did you feel about the idea that that fire got ignited at such an opposite time, like everybody was shut in? and shut down and then boom, you know, all of a sudden everybody's out in the street. <laughs> I think it, it added to it. Right. I mean, we were, we were all terrified. We've all been terrified since the beginning of March. I mean, our species is terrified and our physiology, we all watched our physiology. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of carbohydrates I've eaten, you know, and like eating weird shit and like, what is my, what am I doing? You know, all the coping mechanisms that came about and everything. And yeah, and then we were all put in our house and all of our daily distractions, not all of them, but the majority of them work. The ability to get out of the house, the ability to distract through all that stuff. Huge percentage of our distractions were taken away. We still had some, but not all of them. We're, we're social beings and being with each other is important. And so we got a lot of things stripped away from us and we had to sit with our feelings. You know, people were dealing with anxiety and depression and talking about it in public more than ever. Yeah. Uh, You know, insight timer probably has, you know, 2 million new fucking subscribers on it because of this, you know? So yeah, when you take away people's distractions, you know, I don't, if if you have anyone listening has ever been to a silent Buddhist retreat, 36 hours in, I'm ready to kill someone. I'm ready to murder for chocolate and to kill someone. And then, you know, and that, and it all has to burn off and it's all this energy and you have to feel it and it's rage and all of that. And then it does, if you let it burn, it will do its natural thing, which is then go down and go say, okay, oh, now what? It's fascinating what's going on in our culture. It is so (laughs) wild. I'm I'm sitting here with a bit, you know, that, that gif where you just eat the popcorn. (laughs) That's me. I'm just with Stephen. Michael Jackson eating the popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Jackson. (laughs) You know, my dad, um, 
people ask me, my dad's been gone for 12 years, you know, what would your dad be saying about these times? And, you know, I just say, well, just watch his material. It's obvious, you know, watch things about, you know, what he talked about the owners of America. If you want to know what he'd think about Donald Trump, he'd think that his important stance and his anti-racist stances were always very clear and his feminist stances were always very clear and who has power and, and how they keep us distracted was always really clear. But I say to people, and I've been saying it for the last 12 years, my dad had this great line, which really sums it all up, which was summing it up 12 years ago. And then like, as each year goes by, it's like, wow, this is just getting more perfect, which is (laughs) when you're born, you get a ticket to the freak show. But when you're born in America, you get a front row seat. And so here we are, people, we're at the front row seat. Once again, this is his stance. If you can yes, have compassion and do the work and show up and do the work as a citizen and do the work as an enlightened being, great. And at the same time, know that it's a show. It's, it's a show in the sense that all of life is a show. You can get a little relief there too, if you were willing to sit back and kind of see it as the show and think about the long history of humanity and all of the insanity that has gone on It has been darker, it has been more chaotic, it has been crazier, way more crazier in the past than it ever is right now. I mean, we have so much technology that helps us with food and medicine and all this kind of stuff, but it's crazy. And for those of us in our generation, you know, I'm 57, I'm kind of right between Boomer and Gen Xer, we've never had to deal with anything like this. The 60s, the chaos of the 60s, we were all little kids, so this is our thing. This is our moment. And, uh, and I don't know where it'll end. Who knows where it's going, but I, I hope there is a, the moral arc of the universe. I do hope it bends towards justice. I want to say that I really appreciate how you show up in the world and give your gifts of insight and connection and introspection to others, particularly women and that through all of whatever your stories have been and your identity path, that you've chosen it as a means to connect others and help others see themselves. And I think that's amazing. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And, and it's been really amazing. The last two years, I've taken all that I learned from my identity path, my journey of figuring out who I was and telling my story. And I figured out a way to turn all of that into content and tools and a program for women who are in the middle of their own identity shift. You know, whether it's empty nesters or career shift or divorce or retirement or that thing where you're like the Peggy Lee song, is this all there is? You know, that thing, <laughs> that moment, um, which can come at any time. Um, I'm really excited that I've been able to, that I've gotten a chance to tell my story through my memoir and my solo show and now use all of that work I did on myself and my theoretical understanding of it to give it to other women, to help them move through the transition of who am I now and what am I now? And have, and getting to look back and saying, how did I become this? What choices did I make? What roles did I unconsciously walk into? And which ones do I not want to do anymore? For me, that's exciting to like take this life work and then rejuge it into this other thing and then see women the last two years now two and a half years oh my god um no two years yeah two and a half years 
make the journey with themselves and to figure it out and to see themselves in a bigger way and to have new conversations with themselves and to get some new tools and to drop some of these roles and to learn how to really love themselves and to step into their leadership. There's a lot of them stepping into leadership positions or entrepreneurial positions. That's exciting because it's like, oh my God, there's a ripple effect. Yay. <laughs> so I like it when you said that earlier resonance and you showed the picture with your hand so people won't be able to see it, but the resonance, she created this ring of echoes with her hands. Yeah. And I understand exactly what you're talking about. We can never, ever know what it is that we're putting out there. All we can do is put it out there. And especially when it comes to art and expression, it's no longer ours. Once it's out, that's the gift is the unknowing of how and when it touches and the fact that you can write a book or do a one woman show or talk about your father or help women, like whatever yeah. it is you're showing up in that way, it's all resonance. Yeah, and it all feels, you know, we started the conversation about purpose, like how do you write, you know, and it all feels like it is on purpose for me. It's always about recognizing what's unconscious, bringing it conscious, and then asking what's next? What do I want to do with this? Who do I want to be now? How do we reach our hands out to each other and say, I'm here? You know, that's all the world. That's what all that everyone in the world wants in the, in the end. You know, we talked about that loneliness earlier is we just want another human being to reach their hand out or their elbow in these days, put that hand out and say, I see you. Yeah. And you know, let me help you up. I want you to know that I see you. I don't know maybe if I can help you or whatever, because we're all on our own path, but I see you. And um, that's certainly what's going on in America right now, is we are seeing people who have been silenced on so many levels and made invisible on so many levels. And it's hard work. It's hard work. It's humbling work to say and to figure out how we've participated in that even when we didn't mean to. A friend of mine I just talked to and did the podcast with earlier that I mentioned, Kalani, he talked about the moment of self-inspection. Mm -hmm. The moment is here and how easy it is to uh, ignore it. <laughs> but right now it's a little hard to ignore. And what does that bring when you, you go through the yeah. card catalog and see? How can you extend your hand? What does that look like? What does that mean? So, And so the muscle of that is so important. So doing the work for yourself first. Right. Checking in with yourself, getting real with yourself. That's the ego work you have to do so that then you can do it in the culture and the collective in a way that's clean and real and truthful. It's hard. Ego death is hard, no matter what. But it's damn worth it. And you do it with uh, funny. <laughs> And you have to. Sweet. <laughs> and you do it with sweetness and compassion and uh, reality. So there you go. There you go. I appreciate our conversation. I really do. This has been fantastic. And for everybody out there, Kelly's book is called A Carlin Home Companion Growing Up with George. And I am certain you're going to be doing some amazing things ahead in the future. And if people want to get in touch and learn about your coaching and your teachings and if you do workshops and anything you've got going on. Yeah, my coaching is at womenontheverge coaching.com. Okay. And 
And then my website's just kellycarlin.com. But if you want to get right to the coaching part, it's Women on the Verge Coaching. And yeah, and I'm on Twitter, Kelly underscore Carlin. I hang out there a lot too. Thank you so much, Kelly. This has been amazing. And what a conversation on Identity Talk. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I've had a fantastic time. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. For questions or comments, reach me at janalopez.com. And when you're having a moment of identity doubt, just remember that seeing is relieving.